0: Thanks, Leanne. It's great to be uh, with you, everyone, together, and a great privilege to be opening up the word with you. Let's pray as we begin. Uh, Dear Father, we give you thanks for your word to us, and we pray that as we turn to it, you would be with us, that you would help us to understand it, and more than that, to take it into our hearts and live it out. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, there's a story told about a man who is a bit full of himself and uh, he's really keen to get into quite an exclusive social club and so he manages to score an invitation to their big benefit dinner and he goes there uh, ready to impress the movers and shakers, but when he arrives, to his dismay, he's actually taken past the main group of dignitaries and seated on a table in the corner, um, just himself and quite a small Chinese man. And the Chinese man is basically just muttering to himself, looking into his hands. And the man thinks, great, why did they put me here? I don't think this guy even speaks English. I should be over there where all the action is. As he sits down, the Chinese man uh, smiles at him, but the man's already looking past him uh, back to the main group. So the Chinese guy goes back to looking into his hands. Now the entree arrives, and it's soup. And so the guy thinks, well, I I should at least make an effort. So he turns to the Chinese guy, points to his bowl, and goes, you likey soupy? (laughs) The Chinese guy nods and smiles, and the man thinks to himself, OK, job done, you've been friendly, and goes back to his soup. Now, the formal part of the night comes, and the MC gets up and he says, and it is my great pleasure to welcome our keynote speaker for this evening, who just happens to be our new president. Chinese guy checks his palm cards one last time, stands up, goes to the podium and delivers his address in a totally Aussie accent. It's not me, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) I I wish it was. (laughs) Uh, He finishes, returns to the table, and as the man is still picking up his jaw off the floor, Chinese guy turns to him and says, You likey speechy? (laughs) Uh, sometimes you need to know who you're truly dealing with and who it's really all about. And this is certainly the case here at Moore College, is it not? So whether you are a student or faculty, whether you're a spouse or a staff member, uh, we need to remember at all times that our entire college revolves around one thing, one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, around here, it kind of goes without saying, doesn't it? And so it needs to be said again. Around here, our entire college revolves around one person, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason we need to keep on saying it is because in the crush of life, it just gets so easy to forget or assume. And so at this community chapel, uh, I want to work through that passage in 2 Corinthians that um, Leanne just read for us that calls on all of us as individuals and groups to be intentional, in building our involvement in this wonderful community squarely on the Lord Jesus Himself. So I have three points in line with this from the passage. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ drives us to be determinedly honest, soberly helpful, sorry, soberly hopeful, and lovingly humble. Alright, so let's get into it. And first point: the gospel drives us to be determinedly honest. Verse 1. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Uh, You'll know, as well as the Apostle Paul, that living for Jesus in a fallen world is wonderful, but it's also hard, isn't it? And uh, certainly Paul's life and ministry was characterised by tremendous suffering and difficult experiences. Shamed, slandered, made destitute, violently assaulted several times or I'm sure you know about 2 Corinthians itself, which was a letter written to those deeply loved and won for Christ by Paul at great personal cost who are now belittling and abandoning him to chase after the shallow glamour of those spiritual equivalents of a five minutes of fame 90s boy band, the super apostles. would have been heartbreaking to sow your life into these people and then see them turn their backs on you like this. And yet Paul says in verse 1, in the midst of this suffering and disgrace, he doesn't lose heart. How could you not? Well, it's because he understood the gospel, that verse 1, salvation is from start to finish a matter of God's mercy. In other words, God is not glorified by how such impressive, wonderful people like us have chosen him but how in his mercy he has chosen sinful fallen people like us and critical to this as Philip Melanchthon once put it is the confession that the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary in the first place and because that's Paul's gospel that's why in verse 2, truth and honesty are the hallmarks of Paul's life and ministry and he renounces any other way. No self-glory, no self-promotion, no hype, no manipulation, no coercion. Just plain presentation of the truth of sin and our utter need for Jesus, which remains true and wonderful, and glorious, and worth living and dying for, no matter what response it is met with. So a couple of implications flowing off this uh, for our life here at Moore College. Um, I was just thinking tangentially. Um, I actually think this is the reason behind why we want more to have a rigorous, stretching, tough program. And that is because we want you to be able to speak gospel truth as clearly and accurately as possible in changing world context for your entire lifetime. That's really challenging. And it's really important. It's a matter of life and death. And so you cannot cut corners with your theological education. And I hope you don't want to. And so I really hope that you take your studies, if you're studying here, Or you take supporting those who are studying, if you are supporting those who study here, very seriously. What a privilege. What a responsibility we have to speak the one truth that gives people eternal life. So whatever you are doing here, whether you're a student or someone else, set your heart on what God has given you to do here to the best of your abilities. But while it's got to be true of the gospel we preach, I think it's also got to be true of our lives. And I think it would be especially remiss of us at a community chapel didn't therefore determine to foster a culture of truth and integrity at more in response to these verses. And praise God, uh, we're by no means perfect. I'm sure you're very aware of that. But I think you really do get a real sense That living gospel truth amongst each other is is highly valued at more. And may it always be so. But I think it's always worth being alert to the real danger in our contexts of projecting a surface godliness or having a facade of life under control. But there's a distance between yourself and how you're really going and your words and how you present to others. That's actually more about preserving or building your own reputation or position than glorifying Jesus. And again, isn't that so easy to do, especially when the pressure is on? I was um, going through some quotes uh, of uh, some of our kids. We're we're compiling a list for their 21st. It's going to be great. (laughs) And um, I remember one instance, uh, one of them, I won't name them, um, but we, uh, I remember we had some outdoor chalk around the house and we had this big box of coloured chalk and we were just chatting away with one of our kids who was at the time about three and uh, Chris and I were talking and then we realised our three-year-old had made his way upstairs to his room and the box of chalk was missing. And um, we just kind of, as we cast our eyes up there, we started to hear scraping on the wall. Quite a bit of scraping. And so we called to our boy and said, um, are you up there with the box of chalk? It's a slight pause. Yes. <laughs> You're not drawing on the walls, are you? No. <laughs> I'm decorating. <laughs> and it's beautiful. <laughs> Now, you know, that was funny and innocent. But, but there is that sense in all of us, isn't there? To actually try and cover our tracks with our words and use our words expediently for our own promotion, for our own benefit to get us out of trouble, rather than being determined to be utterly honest and have integrity in all our words and dealings with each other. But brothers and sisters, that distance created between yourself and your word is sin. And it can be so destructive and deadly. And I'm sure you're aware of institutions, ministries, people who have given in to that exact impulse. I'm under so much pressure. I need this. It was for God that I did it. And it's because of a lack of integrity like that that people have been torn apart by Christian leaders who let go of their determination to speak only the truth. And I'm equally sure that, like me, you sense in your heart that same potential and temptation to just loosen your grip ever so slightly on your commitment to utter honesty and integrity towards others because deep down it feels like it'll just be to your advantage to do so. We've got to fight it, don't we? So two quick points of application. First... How are you going with it? How are you going with being determinedly honest in your life and ministry? Are there areas where your words, your relationships, the way you do your work or ministry are misaligned with the truth of of God's grace to sinners in Christ? If you can think of an area like that, and I know I certainly can, uh, why don't you make note of it somehow, write it down or uh, jot it down somewhere on your um, device and make sure you're working on it uh, this year. But I think second, very quickly, and to do with our community, uh, perhaps you have been on the receiving end of a failure of integrity of sorts in your church, in your family, maybe even here at more. And if so, uh, I'm sorry, that is not how the Lord Jesus wants his church and his people to be. Um, And please know that at least here at college, there are avenues to be heard and help change college towards the truth of the gospel. You can speak to a faculty member or a chaplain you you trust. But brothers and sisters, it happens too often, doesn't it? And so as you think about your ministry, as you head out into ministry, make sure that you build accountability structures into your life, whether it's through your cohort, through mentors, through supervisors or something like that. And, And when you are in a position of power... Make sure you build avenues and contexts of genuine openness and honesty for those under your care, even if, and especially if, that includes the painful possibility of them critiquing your leadership. We have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting, the for- setting forth the truth plainly, We commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Be determinedly honest in all your dealings and fellowship. Secondly, the gospel drives us to be soberly hopeful. And so the way the gospel shapes our life here, I think, is a helpful balance to that first point. And that's especially the case if the results of our integrity and our truth-telling are not immediately apparent. You see, if the gospel is the saving glory of God, why do people still reject it? Verse 4, it's because they have been blinded to the truth by the devil's lies. We've got to remember we live in a world that isn't neutral. Sin has hardened people against God. So that even though his glory and love in Christ is so clear to us, and despite our best and most genuine efforts, people may still reject the gospel and may still reject us together with it. And again, brothers and sisters, we've got to take this truth very seriously. Otherwise, ministry and evangelism will become very disheartening when they don't seem to work. But these verses don't just give us the problem, that is, their their eyes and hearts are veiled by the devil. They actually also give us the solution. And in fact, it's exactly the same. That is, the only way they'll come to be saved is by God himself taking away the veil over their heart through the same gospel they reject now. Like it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 16, But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And so these verses tell us we've got to keep pumping out the gospel, even if we don't see results straight away, because God and only God in his timing and sovereignty can and will remove that veil when he so pleases. But here's the thing, by the gospel. Um, I have a friend who became a Christian in later life, And uh, his favourite chapters of the Bible are 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 because he says, it's basically me, right? Uh, For years, Christian friends at school had told him the gospel and he hated it, paid them out and always dismissed them. But then years later at uni, he met some other friends who told him the gospel again and suddenly the lights turned on and he turned to Christ. And he says... 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 was me in high school and 2 Corinthians 3.16 happened to me at uni. Blinded for years to the gospel until one day God in his grace removed the veil by the same gospel. Don't stories like that give you hope for your friends and family for whom you might wonder, will they ever come to understand the gospel? Is there any use in keeping on trying? So, again, two points of application for us from this. Number one, who in your circles needs the gospel? I think one of the dangers of being in a Christian bubble like this, and I certainly feel this myself, is that I spend most of my time entirely with people who are thoroughly converted. And so I'm away from the edges of people who actually really need to hear the gospel. But I can still think of lots of people in my circles, my family, who need the gospel. So who is it for you? Is there someone who seems just too hardened that you've told them so many times and it's fallen on deaf ears and you just start to wonder, what is the point? Perhaps in response to these verses, you could think about, how can I rekindle my efforts, find some new energy to try again, find a new way to keep speaking the gospel into their lives? And again, it's hard, isn't it? I find it so draining talking to particular family members again and again. But remember, this is the saving glory of God. You don't know if God is using you to slowly chip away at the layers of hardness so that one day someone else tells them that decisive time and God gloriously rips the veil away and grants them eternal life. Or it may even be the next time you pluck up the courage to bring up Jesus again, that God would do his wonderful work. And at the end of the day, if our gospel is of the man who was despised and rejected, is it any wonder if our experience of wrestling someone from hell heaven matches that so keep telling your friends your family the gospel, tell them about Jesus Uh, second implication, it's uh, especially true of conversion but I think these verses also have powerful implications for our community in other words we aren't to give up on each other and the changes God can make in someone's life It's tragic, isn't it, when you see Christians who have just given up on each other, closed down relationships and stopped seeking to encourage one another and spur one another on in love and good deeds. But if we trust the God of these verses, the God who gives life to the dead, don't we believe that he can also change that brother or sister who needs it? but it's only him. So we need to pray for each other. We need to pray for God to change and grow that person so that they might stop being a detriment to others and hurtful towards others and be a blessing to others. And and while we're at it, we need to pray for God to change and grow us too, don't we? So that we we also might continue to be a blessing to them. Now, um, we need to be sober in this and not naive. Real change is often slow and very painful. And in this world, it may never be complete. But just remind yourselves, God raised Jesus from the dead. God raised me from the dead, saved me from my sins and gave me new life in him. And if he did it for me, He can do it for them. So we ought to be people who are full of hope for each other in the God who can truly change hearts. And brothers and sisters, if that characterised our community, what a wonderful community to be part of. So who in our community needs your prayers like this? And then realise that even as you are pointing at them, there are three fingers pointing right back at you. And so keep praying for yourself along these lines too. So the gospel drives us to be determinedly honest. The gospel drives us to be soberly hopeful. And finally, the gospel drives us to be lovingly humble. Uh, I was once at a church service uh, visiting another church where uh, someone prayed for the speaker before they got up and uh, the entire content of their prayer was that the speaker would speak eloquently and impressively. But verse 5 shows us the danger of that sort of prayer. Verse 5, we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. And so we don't need impressive, eloquent Bible teachers. We need humble servants of the word. When we evaluate our speakers, we're not to assess them by who is the most captivating, who's the funniest, who's the most impressive, but rather by who helps us to really love Jesus more, who helps us to understand what Jesus has done for us better, who draws our attention not to themselves and their rhetorical skill, but away from themselves and onto Jesus. Verse 6, "'For God who said, let light shine out of darkness,' made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face, not of the speaker, but of Christ. Now, I want to say great communicators and prominent Christian personalities certainly have their place, and I am very thankful for the ministry of many of them in my life. But, you know, when I stop and think about who it is that really nourished me and fed me, whose preaching was the most effective in the actual nuts and bolts of growing me in Jesus, it actually wouldn't be them. It would be people like my congregational pastors, some of whom no one beyond their own congregation would have ever heard preach a sermon. And while their sermons may not have been the most scintillating all the time, it was actually their ministry that most directly challenged me, most directly called me to repentance, most specifically grew me. Why? Because they knew me and they loved me, and they were directing their energies simply to serving me in Jesus. Um, so I, a helpful analogy for me in terms of thinking about you know your, your ordinary sometimes very boring Sunday sermon and the great kind of event that you go to that just blows your mind with how, how good the speaker is. Um, I guess it's a little bit like uh, meals. And, um, you know, you'll be glad to know I'm, I'm thinking about food. Uh, I do that quite often. But, um, <laughs> but it's a little bit like, uh, like meals at home every night cooked by your mum or something versus going out to like a, a three-chef-hat restaurant to eat, right? You may remember that spectacular meal... But it's actually mum's spaghetti for the 50th time in a row that truly keeps you alive and builds you up nice and strong. Does that make sense? All right. So don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. I really appreciate a good sermon and I hate boring sermons, right? So engaging, clear, concise, compelling, more of that yes, please. Students, keep working on your sermon crafting. But at the same time, be crystal clear Not because you want to be a great speaker. Only because you want to make the message about your Lord as clear and compelling as he deserves. Because the power to save and change lives doesn't lie in you, the messenger, or your rhetoric. The power lies in the word of God. And the glory is not in your face, but as verse 6 told us, the face of Christ. James Denny wrote this of preaching, but I think it's true of ministry in general. It is singularly impossible at one and the same time to show that Jesus Christ is Lord and that you are clever. It's a great little phrase to keep in our hearts and minds. It is all about Christ's glory, not ours. So never make life and ministry and preaching a means of your self-promotion, but find your glory in making your life and ministry a means of Christ promotion. I love those final verses from the hymn, May the Mind of Christ My Saviour. Uh, they capture, I think, what the Apostle Paul said in this passage so well, when he says, May the love of Jesus fill me as the waters fill the sea, him exalting, Self-abasing, this is victory. May his beauty rest upon me as I seek the lost to win and may they forget the channel seeing only him. Uh, One final point of application to our college community from these verses before we wrap up. Uh, You know, from a human perspective we actually have quite a lot to be proud of as a college. We are the longest established and largest theological college in Australia. Uh, We have the largest single institution library in the southern hemisphere. We have a theological pedigree and rigour that's looked to by many across the globe. We were one of only a few tertiary institutions in all of Australia granted the status of a university college. Now, whatever all that means, it is a lot to give God thanks for, isn't it? This is an amazing place and an amazing group of people to be part of. And I actually think all these things are part of what rightly give people confidence in coming here for their theological education. They have a valid place. But along with them, I'm sure you are very aware that there have been accusations that we are proud and we think we're better than everyone else. And you know what? If there is even a hint of truth in that, then all those accolades and achievements aren't worth squat. Brothers and sisters, let's always remember more college is not about more college. More college is about the Lord Jesus. And if that's so we need to make sure every aspect of our community life and the ministries that our graduates go on to be involved with and lead resound with his praise alone. Let me wrap up. Brothers and sisters, we have a glorious ministry to be involved in. What we are preparing for is the most weighty and significant and awesome thing in the world. Is it not an absolute privilege to be preparing to give life to the dead and the grace of Christ to a world in desperate need? And is it not an absolute privilege to be able to support those who are going to do so as family and staff and chaplains and faculty? Never forget, whatever part, whatever role in, your commun- in our community that you fill, that this is what you are here at more for: the saving glory of God revealed in the face of our wonderful Lord Jesus Christ. So as you hear God's word this morning, what aspect of His gospel do you need to let take root in your heart? Do you need to work on being determinedly honest? Do you need to work on being soberly hopeful? Do you need to work on being lovingly humble? If these things rang through our individual and community life, what an amazing fellowship more college will continue to be in nurturing and preparing people to, uh, to serve God in the world. Let's do it, eh? Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for the gospel of Christ, and we thank you for its simplicity, but also how profoundly it shapes every aspect of our being so richly. So please enable us by the power of your spirit in response to your word to be honest with each other, to be hopeful in you, and to be humble as we bring the gospel to the world. And we pray it in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.